We are in the book of Revelation. If you want to turn there, we're in Revelation chapter 12 this week, but we've been studying the book of Revelation, and you know, obviously we kind of had a little bit of a hiatus for a couple of weeks, but uh, we're going to get back into it. And we're looking at it, we're saying we're going to do the nutritional stuff. And when I say that it's all nutritional, and, and I don't want to act like it, some of it isn't, but we're not going to get bogged down in the empty calories that the world tends to get bogged down when they look at the book of Revelation. And it becomes very, very important this week, because up until now, you know, we've gone through 11 chapters, and, you know, and, and it's been relatively straightforward. I think so anyways, because it's pretty straightforward. Again, you know, it's this wonderful story about, you know, a group of churches that John is going to encourage. Remember the book of Revelation, it says several times it's written about things that were about to take place very, very soon. It was not intended to be this weird little roadmap to Armageddon and to sort of, you know, the end of the world and, and everything like that. And we, we studied and we said, you know what, the book of Revelation can't be out of sync with the rest of the Bible. And so if Jesus says even he doesn't know when that time is going to be, then, you know, somehow to think that we can look and decipher out of the book of Revelation exactly when it's going to be, uh, we're kind of fooling ourselves. And more importantly, not only are we fooling ourselves, but the, the, the worst part really is that we are missing the blessings of God's Word. It isn't just that we're being silly and everything like that, but we really, when we start doing those things, yeah, we're, we're asking God's Word to do some things that He didn't mean for those specific words to do, but one of the ripple effects is we miss out on the blessings. We miss out on the joy. We miss out on the encouragement. We miss out and, and there because there is nothing more exciting than to open up God's word and to let it just sort of just and just to bask in it. But to do that, you've got to do so with the right attitude and you know the right spirit, but also doing it in the right context. And there's nothing worse, even, you know, very good-meaning people that grab the Bible and, and start, well, it says this and it says this, and no, it really doesn't. And so that becomes important this week, really, because now we're going to kind of transition, and some of the visions we're going to, I would, I'd hope to kind of catch up a lot this week and do, you know, four chapters, and, and I thought, well, if I could do four chapters, it would kind of get me caught up, and I could kind of very, very quickly gloss over that whole numbers and three sixes and everything like that and not even give you guys a chance to ask questions. And so I thought, no, I'm, I'm still not going to let you ask questions. Uh, don't get me wrong, unless you're addressing the questions to Bill Oakley, in which case he's more than, than, than I can sit down at this point. But, uh, you know, Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 13, where we're going to be tonight, you know, a lot of critical things going on. Okay, if you remember real quick, John... He's imprisoned for his role in the gospel and for his testimony and the fact, and so he's, you know, it's probably in a house arrest. John's caught up in the spirit and John is allowed to see certain things. He's allowed to see things that are about to take place as he writes to the seven churches of Asia, but he is told to write the things that he sees. And that's where this epistle, and it really does have an epistle feel to it because it's a letter and I mean, it's, he's writing this. But that's where it differs than, you know, a lot of the ones that, you know, that John wrote, you know, first, second, and third John, or what maybe Peter wrote, or any of the, the epistles that Paul wrote, where it was 
a letter. And there was a message, and he penned it, and there is a message to this. But he was asked to write the things that he sees. And so we're, we've been kind of watching that. All right. Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 13. This is, and, and kind of through this, we've seen trumpets and we've seen seals and scrolls and we've seen, you know, a lot of things. But again, all of this really kind of goes into John is now getting a glimpse of Christ. And if you remember way back in the very, very beginning, you know, when we talked about, you know, words like apocalypse, remember we talked about that? Who remembers what the word apocalypse means or the word apocalyptic and, and things like that? What is that? What is our English version? A revealing revelation. You know, so when we talk about the apocalypse, you know, we always say that kind of with a little, ah, you know, kind of like something dramatic. Is it, and it, the word apocalypse, you know, most closely translates to our word revelation, to reveal. But yet somehow we've ascribed apocalypses to this, whoa, 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 you know, this, this big dramatic fanfare and wars and, and everything like that. Oh, no. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Christ. And what John is getting to see is he's getting to see the full deity of Jesus in the way that he reigns, in the way that he commands things, in the way that all of nature bows down and humbles themselves and worships him. That is what he's getting to see. And in that message, as he then writes it and gives it to a group of Christians who are going through all kinds of tribulations, the kind of tribulations that we can't possibly fathom under the Neros or the Domitians or, or any of those other Roman emperors, that's encouragement to know that Jesus has got... In fact, that is what Jesus said in the very beginning as he comes face to face with Jesus. Jesus goes, hey, I got this. I'm the first, I'm the last. I control Hades. I control the gates of hell. I got this. And from that point on, it is the revealing of Jesus. And in a way, because remember, John got to see a portion of Jesus when Jesus was here on earth. Or I say a portion of it. It was very, you know, um, you know man-centric, mankind-centric, mortal-centric. Yes, he got to see that Jesus did some, some wonderful uh, miracles and things like that. But in the end, he saw, you know, sort of this humanity side of Jesus. Now he's getting to see Jesus in the heavenly realms. He gets to see Jesus truly as the eternal son of God and what that really means. And as wonderful as it must have been, as incredible and awesome as it must have been here on earth to sit at the feet of Jesus, to be able to do so in the heavenly realms, and to sit at the throne of Jesus. Oh, that's something very, very different. When you get to see that, when you get to write about that, oh, all of a sudden that brings confidence to those that are going through things. Okay, so here we are. Here we go. Brace ourselves. Revelation chapter 12. All right, so in chapter 12, we're going to see a woman, and we're going to see a dragon, and we're going to see briefly a child. And these are going to become some very, you know, cornerstone themes to all of this. You know, especially this concept of the dragon and what's going on here. Because up until now, it's primarily been, you know, sort of happy news, if you will. Maybe not so much happy because, uh, you know, certainly there were some warnings. But now we really get to see, you know, sort of how John is getting a glimpse of how Satan is going to work.
and the zeal with which Satan pursues Christians, and the absolute hatred, the vile hatred, the kind that we can't even comprehend that he has for God and for God's purpose and for God's will, and how there is nothing that he wants more than to snatch God's people from the bosom of the Almighty and shove them toward hell. We're going to get to see that. And the only possible way that God can give John a vision, a mortal a vision of this, is this idea of a dragon. A red, mean dragon. You know, the the fiercest animal, the fiercest image that John could have come up with, or that John could have seen. And even a dragon probably doesn't fully capture just how evil and just how powerful, but it gives John a vision. Okay? And so we're going to see about the woman, the dragon. But before we do that, because we're, ah, let's get to the dragon, finally we get to the dragon, we get to the beasts and everything like that. That's what all the movies are about. I mean, they never have the movies about encouraging things when they get to the book of Revelation. It's always something weird and it's a beast and it's this animal and it's this half bird, half dog, half this and, and everything like that. But let's get to the backdrop first because there is a purpose to the vision that John is getting. And you really have to take time and appreciate the purpose and what, what God is trying to convey in this vision. Because it isn't just he's trying to scare John. It isn't just he's trying to come up with this or, or anything like that. This vision that just kind of makes you just go, oh, oh my. Okay, that's, that's what movies are for. Okay? You know, the movies about the book of Revelation have a different purpose than what the book of Revelation really did does. There's a backdrop to it. Because one of the things that you're going to begin to see is some of these conflicts. There's going to be four conflicts that we're going to talk about tonight, and they're very, very important that we begin to see. You know, these conflicts between the dra- what, the, what the dragon's trying to do and what God's purpose is. There's these conflicts. That's the backdrop here. The backdrop also is to make sure that we've got good context around what we're talking about. So that we really understand the imagery and we really understand what God is trying to convey and what God is trying to show. You know, the context is very important. Continuity is important, especially here. Because one of the things that we're going to draw on is the role of Christ. And not just the role of Christ at the time of the writing, but just the fact that Jesus, you know, from the very, very beginning, Jesus has had a purpose. God has had a purpose for his son. It was, you know, it was considered, it was contemplated long before the beginning. Long before Adam first breathed. God understood something that was going to have to happen. And he understood the role of his son. And that when we get to this part of the vision... You know, one of the things that begins that there's this continuity to this theme. It isn't just something all of a sudden, whoop, here's this vision. There's a continuum of it, but also confidence. That one of the things that John is going to see, you know, because he's going, we're going to go three for three real quick on the first conflicts. And yep, although Satan makes, you know, a little bit of headway here and there, at the end of the day, God's purpose, God's plan prevails. And we're going to see the, you know, that God did it time and time again. And the beauty of that and the importance of that is that John gets to see something as heinous 
as hideous, as evil, and as powerful as a dragon being defeated. And that's what he gets to see in realms that you and I don't get to see. And how encouraging that is to know that these battles take place. And when they take place, God deals with things. Now, they, you know, when we understand that Satan is allowed to do certain things here on earth, and we really wish he wouldn't, it'd be great, wouldn't it? Am I the only one that thinks that'd be kind of a, that'd make for a pretty good Wednesday? Just, you know, if Satan could just sort of be boxed up for a day, you know, and everything like that. I don't know what the opposite of All Hallowed's Eve is, but if we could have one of those, that'd be awesome. But no matter how powerful the dragon appears, he's nowhere near as powerful as God. Okay, so let's go back. So we've got the woman and we've got the dragon. So turn over. Here we are. Finally, we open up Revelation chapter 12. And he says, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. He sees a woman. Now, we're going to get to what the woman represents kind of more toward the end. But he sees a woman. And he sees a woman in sort of this heavenly glow. You know, he sees it, you know, clothed in the sun. The moon at her feet. A crown, not not just any crown, but a crown with 12 stars on her head. Okay, that is in, you know, so he sees a woman in glory. He sees a woman with radiance. And not a radiance of earthly perspective. Not a really cute outfit. Not really pretty hair or anything like that. Notice he doesn't talk anything about that. He talks about the radiance. This is, this is in a heavenly realm. And with a crown. And anytime you had a crown with 12 jewels on it, that was a good crown. Okay, that wasn't that little, remember, does Burger King still do the crowns? This was no Burger King crown. I don't know if they do that anymore. My family doesn't like Burger King, but that's, that's a whole different week. Um, now, she's pregnant. And she's about to give birth. Okay, that's the woman. He sees that. Now, He says there's another sign in verse 3, appearing in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. All right, now things are getting pretty graphic, aren't they? He sees a woman in all radiance. Pregnant, about to give birth. And then he sees this dragon. Now, to people that get hung up in the book of Revelation, they worry about, you know, what what does the seven mean and what does the ten mean on the horns and everything like that? And what's it mean when he says, you know, that his tail swiped about a third of the stars and flung him to the earth? Don't worry about that. Okay? Partly because I don't have any notes on it, because, I, because I'm not worrying about it, and I'm hoping you won't either. The whole point here is, you know, I don't, don't worry about what a third of the stars mean. Understand that the vision here is it's a powerful dragon. It is a mean dragon. And if you stop and just think, and what this draws on is, is a contrast, 
you know, that we can kind of get our head around a little bit. I mean, how many of you, I don't know, maybe some of you have been face-to-face with a dragon. Have you? I mean, Anita's been in a bad mood before, but I don't think I've ever, I mean, not dragon kind of bad mood. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that, I mean, we just can't even comprehend that. Nor, but, but start with the vision of the woman. Is there anything, how many of you have ever, you know, what is it we always say, or I don't say it because I would feel inappropriate saying it and just kind of not real manly, but what do we always say about a woman that's pregnant? Oh, she's got a glow to her. She's got that little pregnant glow and everything like that. There's a neat little glow, so I'm told, right? But here is a woman about to give birth. You know, something very, very special, something very, very sacred. And yet, what is waiting for the child? It's the dragon. Now, if you go back and, and you stop, and, and no, we didn't, they didn't use dragons, but if you go time and time again, you look out in the Bible, whenever there was a really wicked, oppressive, paranoid ruler, what was one of the sure signs of their reign? Go back to Pharaoh. What did Pharaoh want to do? Kill them when they're born. What did Baal ask of their worshipers? Sacrifice the babies. What was what were they trying to do at the time of the birth of Jesus? What did Herod want to do? Kill the babies. Time and time again, when you look at the really oppressive, evil rulers, one of the trademarks was the way that they would butcher children. Newborns. And that should stop and sort of cause, and and I just, you know, and, and there's so many social references I would love to make at this point, but we don't have time. But just, you know, that, you know, there's no... Respect for the sanctity of life at birth. And that's what the dragon's prepared to do. The dragon is going to devour the child. Now what we're going to see as this all of this unfolds is the child represents Christ. And we're going to see that plain as day. The dragon represents Satan. The Bible's going to tell us that very specifically. The woman, we'll get to that in just a second. But what John sees now is, and this is conflict number one, is the destruction of a child here on earth. And that is, and not so much on earth, but the destruction of a child at birth. And that is what, the, what Satan is lined up to do. Conflict number one is, as soon as Jesus is born, he wants to devour him. And if you go back and you go to the book of, you know, if you go to Matthew and you look time and time again, at right, at right at the birth of Jesus, and you know, in that early part of Jesus' life, look at the role of Satan in the life of Jesus. You know, he had Herod trying to get him devoured. He wanted him killed. You know, Satan was trying to devour him, you know, as he tempted him. Oh, turn that into bread. Cast yourself on that. Take all of it. But look what happens here. And as John sees this, and so he, he's wanting to destroy the child, to devour the child. But look at what the result is. 
Instead, the child is caught up with God. Not only is the child caught up in God, and, and notice this is not the, you know, the baby is safe. This is a very, very different image than what we saw with Moses. With Moses, we saw the safety of a baby. This isn't just the safety of a baby. This is the baby being caught up with God. Not just caught up with God, the Bible says, but placed on his throne. Christ wasn't just sort of preserved, wasn't just sort of kept safe from the devil, but got to ascend to his rightful throne. You go back and you look at the life of Christ. Yes, Jesus was killed. Ultimately, you know, Satan worked his way into the hearts of people, but Jesus was not killed a day before his purpose was fulfilled. At the right time, Jesus talked about. At the right moment. When my ministry is completed. When my Father's work has been fulfilled. That is when Jesus went to the cross. He did not go to the cross a minute before it was time. And so while Satan could sort of bask, I guess, at the death of Jesus, it happened exactly when God deemed it necessary. And what happened? The child was caught up with God, wasn't he? Not just caught up with God, not just raised from the dead, seated on the throne. Conflict number one, the dragon loses. Now we go to conflict number two. In conflict number two, it gets kind of a little messy here, and uh, and we take a look at this. But uh, it says in verse 7, And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. There is a war in heaven. Ooh, what a simple way. I mean, you just kind of go, I don't think, you know, even John did it justice with just that statement. But if you look at what happens here, so now conflict number two. So, okay, right away, so the dragon, Satan, couldn't thwart the child. So now what he's going to do is he's going to try to somehow mess up the reign of Jesus in heaven. And there's a war. Michael and the angels deal with it. Now, isn't that absolutely fascinating? Satan himself is going to pick a fight. And there's going to be a war. And what John says is there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels were too much for the dragon. And again, we look at this, don't just get caught up in sort of the excitement of the battle. Understand exactly what this means. So that when we talk about, you know, this warfare that takes place, when we talk about things going on in the realms that we can't see, that we can't understand, that we can't possibly get our head around. And when we think about, you know, Satan and his army after our souls and God and his army there to protect us. Notice who doesn't fight in the battle. It doesn't say God and Jesus got in there and finally everything was fine. No. The angels took care of it. You know, I don't understand about angels. I mean, I really don't. 
I mean, I, I, I love it when Steve teaches that. I mean, I, that's, it just hurts my head to think about some of those things. But what I do understand is part of the vision that John gives me, which is, you know what? When they step up, they pretty well take care of things. And Satan, the great dragon in verse 9, was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. I don't know how that took place. I really don't. I don't know how he got there. You know what? You guys can study that. All I know is he wasn't welcome. He didn't belong. And he tried to disrupt the throne of God. And God said, ah, that isn't going to happen. Conflict number two, Satan and his angels are now thrown down. Okay, so now he's thrown down. Okay, so now he's back on earth. Okay, so he can't mess with anything up in heaven. He can't mess with things in the heavenly realm. Okay, so now what does he get? Well, now we get to conflict number three. Now he's going to persecute the woman. Now what we're going to begin to see, and, and you know what? There are several different people have, you know, different ideas of what sort of the woman represents. It, the woman does not represent Mary, because we see, you know, Mary was not the mother of all Christians. The woman does not represent the Jewish people because the Jewish people denied Christ. And so we understand that. I mean, you know, probably the closest approximation, at least for me to get my head around, and I'd encourage you to, is that the woman really represents the purity of God's plan. The purity of God's purpose. You know, it isn't sort of a specific individual. It represents the purity of God's plan. And watch this play out. So, and so the, God's plan in the beginning was preserved. It was protected. It was taken care of. Now we're in conflict number three. We're going to look at the persecution of the woman. And in verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So now the dragon is coming after God's plan. Okay, what's going to happen? The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed. So what John sees is he sees the, the, this woman. And again, the woman you know, stands for the purpose and the plan of God. And so Satan is now going to pursue the plan of God and pursue the woman. And what John sees is, you know what? Two wings like that of an eagle, a mighty eagle, swoop the woman up. Take her out into the desert. Not out of punishment not, you know, or anything like that, but away from the dragon. The dragon gets mad. What's the dragon going to do? Oh, the dragon's going to make a flash flood. Let water come out of his mouth. Okay? You think, oh, that's not good. You know, I mean, some of the worst flash floods are in, you know, sort of desert and dry areas because they're not used to the water. Ah, but what happens? Oh, the earth takes care of it. Not even the angels. Michael is nowhere to be seen. The very earth, the one, you know, that which the Satan has been hurled down to, just opens up and swallows the water. 
And the whole point in all of this is here's Satan. And now he's going 0 for 3. And in going 0 for 3, God has dealt with him. God's angels has dealt with him. God's creation is more powerful. And he just goes 0 for 3. And so now he's defeated. But the Bible says he's also enraged. All right, so then we kind of move to, you know, kind of the end of chapter 12. He says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman, and he went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Okay, and this is where we find the story at the time of its writing. Okay, so Satan couldn't deal with the birth of Christ. That got handled in the life of Christ. He couldn't thwart the reign of Christ. He can't thwart the purpose of God. And so now what is he left with? Now he's enraged, and now he's got only one thing that he can torment. He can't torment anything that is actively a part of Christ or anything like that. And so now all he's got is he's now going to pursue Christians. And that's exactly what it says here. And he talks about how you're going to pursue this. The rest of her children, notice how are they defined? Those that keep the commandments and hold to the testimony of Christ. And again, John sees this. John writes this to a group of people that are undergoing horrible torment from the Roman Empire. And what he's saying is, and what we're going to kind of get, hey, this is all from Satan. And the beauty of it is, and it doesn't feel like it at the time, but the beauty of what he's talking about is, this is all that Satan has left that he can mess around with. And we're going to see that, and especially in chapter 13, as we see the two beasts and the role that they play. This is all Satan has left. He can't fight God directly. He can't fight the will of God directly, or the plan of God. He can't even touch the, you know, the throne of Christ. All he's got left with to meddle with, all he's got left with to torment is us. And that's the conflict that they find themselves in. This is the battle that the churches are in the middle of at the time. And this is what they're seeing. Okay, so let's move on to chapter 13. Because in chapter 13 now, we're going to see that the dragon needs a little help. So what the dragon is going to do for this is the dragon is going to get two allies. All right, and first, you know, and, and this is, you'll see it even the heading in your Bible, and I'm not real crazy about some of these headings sometimes, but, you know, it, this is how they talk about it in the movie. The first one is the beast of the sea. All right, and he said, I saw the dragon stood by the shore of the sea there in verse 1, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on his horn, and on each head was a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like that of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Okay. Put that together in your mental image or whatever. The important thing that you come to, though, is the second half of verse 2. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Now, what the beast is going to come to represent is the Roman Empire at the time. 
And what you know, John is seeing isn't just because he could have left it with just this, this graphic image about you know the head and the feet and everything like that. And that'd be pretty scary. That'd be enough to get everybody to take it serious. But what he wants him to understand, what he wants the readers to understand, what the vision is intended to convey to John is that the dragon, i.e., the devil, is giving this beast authority. Funding it, giving it power, you know, having it work, you know, just you know, all kind of an authority. And he goes on and talks about one of the heads. Looked like it had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound was healed. Here we go. And so it, it was powerful. It was wounded, but it was wounded that was healed. And these are some of the attributes. It had authority from the dragon. Okay, so in all of this, yep, we can get talk, we can look at the beast, we can talk about the beast, but the beast has, and both of these beasts are going to have the authority from the dragon. The dragon is working with the beast. The beasts are not these separate things. These, the beasts are sort of the creation, the ally of the dragon. Now look at the reception, though. And this is the sad part. This is the part that's probably got to be really, really troubling for John. As he looks at this horrible beast you know, ordained from the dragon, everything like that. Look at the reaction. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. They also worshipped the beast and said, who is like the beast? Who can possibly make war against him? Here's what isn't happening here. What's not happening here is all of a sudden we're creating these little Satan worshippers. Okay, that's not what's happening here. Okay, that's not this out-and-out worshiping of Satan or anything like that. Instead, what you've got is, in what John is saying, and if you just step back and you kind of think through the common sense of it, is as you know, Satan empowers the Roman Empire. And remember, what was the Roman Empire known for? Its mightiness. Its power. If it wanted a region, it went in there and it took it. And what does that do? I mean, it, it's, let's, let's think about it on a smaller scale. You know, you know, the way kids interact, maybe at high school or at junior high. You know, what do people tend to do? They tend to side with the bully, don't they? How come? Because they like the bully? Maybe, not really. But who can stand against the bully? If there's going to be power and if there's going to be might, I want to be with the bully. I know they're a bully, but they're powerful. And they give credit to the dragon, whether they understood that they were giving credit to Satan or not, because of the power. Who can possibly wage war against the beast? And if you stop and think, and that's exactly what went on there in the first century as the Roman Empire rose, was who can possibly wage war against the Romans? Who can possibly wage war against Nero or Domitian or any of those other evil emperors? Who can, then, and this is what John sees. Not only just the fact that they, you know, he's got this great power, but that the world begins to embrace because of that power. Now, we could translate that to today, and we've got to be real careful, because, I mean, it's very, you know, a good parallel path today, but you know, we, gotta be, you know, we don't sort of take all this out of context. The beast... It says in verse 5, was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies to exercise his authority for 42 months. 42 months, three and a half years. Again, three and a half years is not seven, so it's not perfect. It's not eternity, but it is kind of a long time. 
He opened his mouth to blaspheming God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power, look at this, to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not, look at this, who have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Again, the distinction that gets drawn in the book of Revelation is those of the earth. doesn't just mean those that are sort of physically on the earth, but it means those that are not following Christ. And that's what he says. Is everybody is following the beast except for those whose names have been written in the book of life. Those that are sealed. Those that are identified. Those, remember, from the very beginning, or at the end of chapter 2, after chapter 12, those who obey the commandments and hold to the testimony. So the scene is pretty simple. And again, this isn't a new scene, right? I mean, Jesus described things in terms of narrow or wide, sheep or goat. Okay, so now we get to you either follow the beast or your name is written in the book of life. Either you follow the beast or you uphold the commandments and the testimony of Christ. It's just one of those two. It's very, very simple. And that's what he sees. He who has an ear, let him hear. It talks about captivity. Okay, then in verse 11, whoops, they openly blaspheme against God, and he does have the ability to make war with the saints. Okay, he does have that ability. Satan does have the ability to mess with us. And if you don't believe me, just ask Job when we get up there to the hereafter. You know, he can only go so far with it, but Satan was allowed the ability to do certain things. And we see right here, and, what, and, and again, you know, the Bible doesn't really soft-pedal things. It doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't say, oh, don't worry about it. It says, nope, it's here. Satan's got this power. The Roman Empire has this power. The Roman Empire can mess with you. And, and, and you know, if you stop and think about it, it's a very similar thing that, you know, we could probably hear today. You know, people can mess with us. There is evil in the world. There are bad people in the world. And not all of them go to jail. Not all of them get fired. Not all of them live on the other side of town or anything like that. Some of them live right next to us. Some of them get promoted. Some of them get the, you know, the finer things in life that we envy and that we covet. And they make our lives miserable. Okay, here we go. Now we come to the beast of the earth. Verse 11. Beast of the earth, beast of the land. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. So he kind of looked like a lamb, but really talked like a dragon. Important here. He exercised all of the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Notice the role of the second beast. That's, I still got five. It's okay. The role of the second beast from the very, very beginning is to cause people to worship the first beast. And if you step back and you really understand what was going on at the time, there were two problems, two evils that were created by the Roman Empire. Number one was just the Roman Empire in general. And just the, the horribleness 
the way that they treated Christians, the persecution and everything like that. It was horrible. They were evil. They were not nice people. I mean, it was just to me, we can't possibly fathom it. But the other thing that happened during that time, it wasn't just sort of this um, oppressive reign like we may you know, read about today. But there was this thing called emperor worship. You know, that the Neros, the Domitians, and everybody else, it wasn't just that they were in power, but they were worshipped. You know, that at some point in time, the Roman Empire stopped just being sort of this government, this, and, and then, you know, then it kind of turned into this oppressive government and everything like that, and very, you know, stratified and you know, government in terms of, you know, kind of mean and how it treated people. But then all of a sudden, it became religious in nature in the sense that Nero and others were actually worshipped. And once that happened, all kinds of evil and all kinds of trouble set in. Because if you were a Christian during that time, and Nero was you know, just sort of a regular old Nero, it just wasn't fun. I mean, they messed with you and they did everything like that. But now, you know, now that your neighbor not only is obeying Nero, but all of a sudden now your neighbor is worshiping Nero, that is a miserable existence. And so that is the second beast. The second beast has to do with this worship. And he performed great miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he, look at this, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them up, you know, to set up an image and honor of the beast. And he was given power and all of this, you know, on and on again. You know, it talks about, you know, blasphemy and everything like that. But look, but it's all about the authority of the first beast, all of which goes to the dragon, deceptive. But he's facilitating the worship of the beast. That's what's going on. Not just that that first beast is in power, but facilitating the actual worship of the Roman Empire, of the Nero's. And he goes on to say, all right, hey, we're about out of time, so it's a great time to do verse 18. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it's a man's number. This is important. 666. Now, we could spend, uh, here's the deal, folks, and, and, and I'm going to be, I'm going to try to tread lightly, but I guess not. I don't know why we wig out over those three numbers. In 2013, but we do. I mean, I, I, I think I've shared with you, it's been a, quite a while ago, and I forgot the name of the hotel. I think it was a Hilton. So it wasn't like it was just a little rundown place. He said, do you want the sat- satanic discount when I checked in? I'm like, well, I don't know. Is that better than AAA or anything like that? And I said, mm, okay, I'm, you know. He said, you know, we got this you know, issue going on, and we don't have the, the rooms renumbered and everything like that. It's on the sixth floor. It's room 666. Nobody will stay in it. I'll give it to you for $6.66 a night. I kid you not. You know, three days, I had 20 bucks in it. Nothing bad happened. Nothing goofy happened. You know, there wasn't any, I mean, it's just a number. It was even better because then on my expense report, you know, they thought it was $100 a night. But anyways, that's a whole, say, anyway, I digress. But it, it's just a number. But the number meant something, and it had an identifying process in the first, at the time of the writing. Here's the thing. You give me any name, 
You give me any wonderful saint here at Northside, you know, current or past, give me enough time and somehow I will finagle, you know, somehow I will get three sixes out of their name. I don't know how I'll do it. I will go to mother's maiden name, I will go to their pet's name or something like that, and somehow I will twist their name, you know, with some alphabet or something like that, and I will come up with three sixes. Because that's exactly what people do. You don't like the president, you can come up with three sixes. You don't like Congress, you can come up with three sixes. You don't like this person and the way that they rule, I bet I can come up with three sixes. Okay, it's not that difficult. More important, but it's, it, it, the number meant something at the time. Here's the thing, and I don't know if you, uh, and so it was an identity at the time, primarily around Nero and Domitian. You know, we talk about Roman Empire. Uh, how many of you know this young lady? I really feel bad for her. Her name's Cody Thacker. She lives in uh, Kentucky. Cody's a pretty good cross-country runner. Okay, so they're at the state meet or whatever it was. And, you know, they give them the numbers and everything like that. She gets the number 666. And she says, I can't do it. And they said, well, this is your number. And she said, I need a different number. And she said, I just can't wear this. It violates my conscience. I'd be like running for the devil. And so she pulled out of the race. Now, on one part of me, I absolutely respect what she did. You know, I mean, certainly, you know, if, if you've got some sort of a conviction, and if you are so, you know, consumed with how you are going to wear the banner of Christ, that something like that bothers you, I think that's great. Because I see a whole lot of people sell out for a whole lot less. But, it's just a number. It, is, it doesn't have any more meaning than any other number than anybody else had in that race. And that's, you know, that's what gets lost sometimes. And, and I get it, and I understand, and, and, and that's the movies doing it and everything like that, where, you know, you ring it up there at the gas, you know, the cashier, and it's $6.66, and, you know, oh, we've got to buy another candy bar because we can't do that. I mean, you just, and I've done that too. I mean, I just, I don't know why, but, you know, we'll come back to this, but it's just... A number. It was important back then, but what it wasn't was this universal labeling of the number 666. It was never meant to be that. It was meant to identify something, a man's number at the time. It was never meant to be this universal thing. Because if universally we were prohibited from the number 666, it would have been a lot more apparent in the New Testament, I believe. I really do. All right, let's end with that. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we don't understand the war that takes place where we can't see, we can't hear. But God, we know it takes place. And God, it scares us because we know that we are completely outmatched. And that we have no ability to fight the dragon, to fight the devil. But God, we are yours. We are your children. And God, we know that you fight on our behalf. That Father, you fight a battle that has certain victory. You fight a battle, Father, where there is no possibility of loss.
And God, we pray that as we remain here on earth and as we deal with the evil and the bad and the things that tempt, God, may we draw strength, conviction, and confidence. Father, we know that there will come a day when we will be gathered around your throne forever. Until then, God, we pray that you be with us and help us. Through Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.